Good morning. I didn't think Florida was supposed to have mornings like this in the middle of May. I'm not complaining, not at all, but just surprised, that's all. So uh, if you've got a Bible, grab it. We're in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Rick. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, uh, lead pastor, which all of that really means is that I talk a lot. That's really ultimately all it means. Um, as, you're, as you're turning there, let me just let me tell you something that shouldn't come as a surprise, right? Christianity, and, and if you're not a Christian this morning and you're here, you're, you're, you know this. The rest of us do too. We just don't like to admit it. Christianity is like pretty offensive, right? I mean, I, we don't have to really explain that. Uh, it's probably better if we just kind of note for the rest of us who are kind of, who, who do this all the time, that we need to be reminded every once in a while how weird it is what we're doing, right? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? You don't? What other context in your life do you sit in a room full of people, sing together, recite things on cue without anyone's like, boom, someone just starts saying, as Jesus himself taught us to pray, and everyone knows, here's what we do now, and then we start doing it. And and then you listen to someone talk for however long he's going to talk, and then you sing some more, and then you give your money away. This is weird. This is weird. And that's not even getting into what we believe. I want you to think for a minute. You are a first century um, Greek speaker. You, maybe you're, maybe you're an ex-Roman military officer or um, you know, maybe you're a merchant or whatever. And you hear this guy come in one day into town. He starts, he starts uh, proclaiming or starts t- talking in the, in the marketplace. And he's like, he says to you, I have good news for you. There is a new king of the entire universe. Really? Okay. So Caesar's been overthrown. This is interesting. Who is this guy? He's a crucified Jew. Oh. And then you go about your business because that's weird. And then if somebody, and if you kept going and you kept listening to him, and not only is he a crucified Jew, but then he was raised from the dead, and you're thinking, all right, now we're done. We're just done. This has gone into bizarro land. This is weird. And yet, and yet, there's something about it that offends our sensibilities, and yet it's so irresistible for many of us. This week we're going to dig into that. What is this offense? What is this scandal? What is... What is it about this that, is, that gets us the way it does? Maybe it's not exactly what we think it is. So if you have your place in Galatians 5, would you stand um, with me? I'm already standing. So if you would stand with me. We're going to be reading verses 7 to 12. This is God's word for us. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. 
I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ah, this is God's word. Given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, it is so good that your word is not exactly as we would always envision it to be. If you were entirely predictable to us, what kind of a God would you be? If we could completely wrap our minds around the mind of God, his purposes, his plans, his fullness, if we could completely kind of sum you up and wrap you up, would you not just be a bigger version of us? So we're thankful. We're thankful that you come and you speak to us and you disrupt us and you entice us. You push us out of where we've been and you draw us closer to where you'd have us. You mess with our lives. All the while trying to make us more and more like you. For you know how we will flourish. So this morning, Lord, we just ask that you would give us the grace to receive what you have for us. That we would see Jesus and that in, by the power of the Spirit that he sent upon his church, that, Lord, we might believe. And we ask that you would do this in his name. Amen. Have a seat. Man, if you're an American, and I imagine most of us in this room are, like, but Americans love a good scandal. I don't know if this is the case in all countries, but, man, and even since the beginning of the... Especially since the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle. Man, we love a good scandal. It only lasts, if we're being honest, our attention span only lasts maybe a week, maybe two if we're lucky. But in that week or two, we are really into it. It doesn't matter if that scandal involves some foreign power, you know, uh, celebrities, a sports franchise, whatever it is. We love the gotcha moment. And in our text this week, Paul calls the cross a scandal or an offense. And like any good scandal, uh, this one involves a public figure, be Jesus, an event that disturbs our sensibilities, right? Something that we, th- we look at and we go, that, that shouldn't be that way. But it also confronts us with a truth that we've got to deal with. But why is it a scandal? Why would a death even a vicious one, and, and it was a vicious one, but why would a, even a vicious death be a scandal to us? That's the question that we're taking to the scriptures this morning. Um, and as always, there's an outline in your bulletin, but uh, we're going to get started there. Look, it's up there. That's really help, helpful it, with, with these absolute categories. So uh, for the first part of this book, if you've been here uh, over the last several weeks, the first part of this, you know, Paul has been, this early Christian leader named Paul who wrote this, has been kind of systematic. He's He's been dealing with his story, who he is, um, what he did, uh, how he came about being a Christian in the first place when he didn't begin that way. In fact, he hated Christians and he hated Jesus. Now he's trying to promote the faith that he tried to destroy. Went through where the Galatians were getting things wrong, these, these people in these churches and in what we now call the southern part of Turkey where, where they've kind of started to go off the rails and why he was uh, vehemently opposing that. But in the last few weeks, what, if, if you've been here, what you may have noticed is that Paul seems to be beside himself all of a sudden. Like he's not just kind of, you know, what, what we kind of imagine these, these writers of the, of the Bible to be like detached and 
And now we're going to go into the next point that I would like to make. And, and you're kind of nice and calm. Now he's, he's beside himself. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's just flustered. He's making these bold statements. He's mixing his metaphors. Everything is just coming out in a jumble. But it's all with this like crazy amount of passion. And we see that again this week as we look at these absolute categories. Okay, Look to verse 7, seven and 8. Paul says this. He says, you're running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, uh, Paul begins with an athletic metaphor. This isn't the first time and won't be the last time that he uses these athletics metaphors, right? He loves to talk about the Christian life and the Christian faith as a race, generally a very long one, one in which you've got to keep going and keep going and keep going, one of endurance. And Paul's saying here, he's saying, you were doing so well, but then who hindered you. Another way of saying that in the original is who cut, who cut in on you? Who cut you off? Who in the middle of this cut you off to, to get you away from the truth? And, and in, in the original, it's the same word that Paul's going to use a little later when he's talking about cutting something else. He, he uses these like word plays all the time. It's so cool um, how he does it. And then he goes on. He says, who cut you off? This persuasion is not from the one who called you. Okay, now two things on this. First, the one. When Paul talks about the one who called you or he who called you, he's talking about God. You see, the Bible is stubborn about the fact that left to ourselves, you and I, everyone, you at home too, that none of us by our nature seek God, at least not the true one, right? When I say we don't seek God, some of you are like, no, 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 I've been seeking, I'm very spiritual, I seek God my whole life. But the Bible would say that the true, like the God as he's revealed in the Bible, we, none of us really want to have anything to do with him least not left to ourselves. I mean, in, in another letter, this writer himself will say that no one seeks God. We're, we are bent to seek anything but him. But the Bible tells us that relationship with God begins with God. It begins there. He is the one who seeks us. He calls us. He acts first, and he does so not because of something great in us, not because he sees something really awesome, like that Rick guy. He's just so cool. I want to be with him. But he does so entirely out of his grace, which is another word for like a, a, a favor that you don't deserve. And so that's first. Second, Paul's being very clear. Whatever it is they're doing now, it is not from God. And that would have flown in the face of the people that had come in, right? So if you've been here, you know that these churches that Paul started, he leaves, some other folks come in, and they're teaching some stuff, and they're saying, Jesus, 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 yeah, yeah, we're fine with Jesus, but we have these other biblical rules, these rules in the Bible that you need to keep, because God gives these rules, you need to keep them, and if you don't, God's not going to like you. And, and, and Paul said that these folks are coming in, they're tripping the Galatians up. They're cutting in front of them. They're, they're insisting on this stuff. And, and Paul's began, his basic point is this. You began running. You began your faith with the understanding that it is by Jesus and Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, that makes you right with God. That is the gospel. And so whatever else this is, he says, this is not from him. This is not from him. Here's the point. Paul sees these folks as these, these Galatians, as people who were doing well in the faith, they were following Jesus, they're trusting in him alone before, for, their, for their status and standing before God, right? But then these other guys came in insisting that you, to have God smile, to have God like you, to, to kind of show that you're part of his people, you have to do these religious works, right? Jesus is all fine, but God likes those who keep the rules. And let's be honest, that does not sound that weird, does it? Now, everything else I said at the beginning 
That's weird. This, that kind of makes sense. Of course, that makes sense. Of course God likes those that keep the rules. Doesn't everybody? Right? But Paul says, they have cut you off. They have tripped you up. You're not running anymore. This is important, so don't miss this point. Paul doesn't see this as like a change of your pace. You were doing a six-minute mile. Now you're more like a 10. This isn't like you've, you've kind of changed a little bit of a direction. It's being tripped up. It's being prevented from running. He's saying this is not of God at all. This is not like the difference between someone who, who, you know, two people putting their faith in Jesus but have a little bit of a difference on who should get baptized and who shouldn't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is the difference between the gospel and moralism. This is the difference between those who proclaim the gospel and those who proclaim moralism. It's an absolute. That leads us into the idea of pollution. Look down at verse 9 to 10. He says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So now he's gone from athletics to baking. It's a normal transition. Um, and, and this is one This is one of those metaphors that um, is used in the Bible a lot. Jesus uses it, uh, probably not as helpful to us. But the entire idea is that when you, when you put a little le- a yeast in a lump of dough, um, it kind of it, it gets it, works its way into all of it. Right? It, it goes through all of it. The point is this, you, you, you put a little yeast in there and it works through so that that lump of dough is no longer unleavened, right? It now has leaven in it. And in the same way Paul says, oh, this is important, you can't add a little bit of moralism to Christianity. It's not like you've got Christianity over here and it's just a little moralistic. It's like, nope. You add a little bit of moralism to Christianity, it goes the whole way through and it's no longer Christianity, it's just moralism. Now, that illustration is probably lost on us, so let me, let's, let's think of it this way, because most of us are not bakers. A few of us are. You're awesome, and uh, I love baked goods, um, and so I'm perfectly willing to taste if you would like, but um, let's look at it this way. Think of it like a glass of water. You've got a glass of water, and you put a drop of Tabasco in that glass of water. Just, there is no part of that water that does not taste at least a little bit of Tabasco, right? Like it gets its way, and you could see this visibly, kids, if you want to do this when you go home, like ask your parents, give me a clear glass of water, and then take a drop of food coloring, same thing. Works its way through. It's not like you can then separate the clean water from the Tabasco, at least not without filter. I get it, filters, yeah, blah, blah, blah. But you get the whole point. The whole point is it doesn't, you, it's not like it's, you know, it's just a little bit. It's everywhere. It fundamentally changes the taste of the water. It was fresh water, now it's something different. That's what Paul's saying. It was Christianity, now it's something different. Some of you are thinking, come on, Rick, but wait a minute. Christianity has morals? I, I, agree, I agree. But there's a difference between morality, a vision for human flourishing, and moralism. Moralism is the idea that what makes you pleasing to God is based on your behavior, your performance. It's that I am more pleasing, that God is more happy with me than other people because of what I do. That he's in, he is, what he's into is, is my behavior. And if our problem is that we are bad, then moralism kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it makes sense. I, again, this is one of those things that doesn't, I mean, 
This is why most people, even if they don't have an understanding, if they've never experienced anything about Christianity, their assumption about Christianity is that it's moralistic, right? Because that just seems to make sense. It just seems intuitive. But if our problem isn't that we're bad, if our problem is that we're independent, then moralism doesn't make sense at all. And that's why Paul says, I have trust in you in the Lord that no one will think something different. The important point of this is the phrase, in the Lord. Paul is saying, if you are truly in the Lord, if you truly have faith in Jesus, you will get what I'm saying, that you can't mix the two. And he continues, the one troubling you will bear the judgment, whoever he is. Do do you see how absolute Paul's being? We, We struggle with this, but he's being incredibly absolute. It's like the one who's troubling you, the one who's leading you is, he's going to bear judgment for this. These teachers have come to these fledgling churches, and Paul says they're going to bear judgment. Why? Because they are trusting not in Jesus, they're trusting in their rule keeping. And the implication is, they are not in the Lord. Remember, uh, we, we, in the Lord, that's that phrase that talks about being united to Jesus, and we've talked about this a lot, that when we place our faith in Jesus... Like when the Spirit works in us and we go, I want Jesus, and and we place our faith in him, the Holy Spirit unites us to him. Paul talks about that all the time in his letters, as being in Christ, in the Lord, in him, so that what's true of Jesus is true of us. Okay, So when he says in the Lord, what he means is you have faith in Christ. But these teachers, he's saying, they're not in the Lord. They're cutting in on these believers. They're cutting them off. They're cutting in because they are cut off from Jesus. When we stand before the Lord, we can offer him either Jesus' perfect obedience and sin-bearing death or our broken, independent attempts to love God and others. It's, it's one or the other. But you can't offer both. And that leads us to the absolute offense. Look down at verse 11 for the scandal. Paul says, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Now, that, that's going to sound strange to us. But again, if you're in the first century, especially as the church is trying to work out how the gospel is going forward in a, in a context in which uh, the majority of people have no knowledge of the Bible, no understanding of the Bible, and yet they're, they're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we merge these two groups, Jewish people and Gentile people, how do we merge them? This would have been a, a pretty constant conversation, right? In the Old Testament, God gave a sign to his people, circumcision. It's applied to every male uh, born into a Jewish family. Um, and, and the reason was this. It was a sign that if his people would have faith and repentance, if they would repent of their sins, trust alone in him, that he would rescue them from their sin, and he would do so to fulfill his promise. And, th- and that sign, it was, was itself a kind of oath of saying, like, yeah, I'm going to have faith and repentance. Like, that's, that's what we're going to do. The other side of it, though, because it was a sign. It wasn't just a sign of being renewed. It was a sign also of possible curse, that if you didn't, that you would be cast off, that you would be cut off. If you, if you turned from God, if you betrayed this promise-bound relationship, this covenant, then you, like the act itself, would be cut off. And so these teachers have come in after Paul and said, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be right with God, then, yeah, I mean, Jesus is good, but you also have to take this sign on yourself. Here's the problem. That sign pointed to something that the gospel said, already happened. Like it had already happened. Like the sign, it, it's kind of like, um, 
you know, when you're driving into Disney's property and, and, you know, as you're entering into the great mega city that they call Disney, no matter which park you're going to, you come in there and there's that big arch, right? And it says, Walt Disney World. As you're coming through, it would be like stopping there and going, I've arrived. Isn't Disney great? Let's go home. Like that, that's all you would do. I, like, I made it. I've made it to the sign. I'm there. See, the sign became for them what got God's approval. And if you didn't have it, you couldn't be part of God's people. And now Paul asks the question because it's likely that these teachers had come along saying, you, know, you want to know why Paul is, didn't tell you this? Because this is a really unpopular thing. Right? It's unpopular. Make guys do this. They're grown men. Like, huh. I don't think I want to do that. And that's why they were, he wasn't pushing it on them. I, I shouldn't really have to go into why that's logical. I'll let you all talk about that around lunch. Um, <laughs> but Paul responds by saying, look, if I'm, if I'm pushing that you don't have to do something like this to get God to like you, why am I being persecuted? He says, if that is the case, the scandal or the offense of the cross is nullified. Okay? So this is a huge statement, so check in if you, if you checked out. This word scandal, or that we call offense, it means something, obviously something that gives offense, or something that causes revulsion. Not a little thing. Something causes a revulsion, that, that internal like, ugh, ugh, that's terrible. And to get why Paul puts these words together, we have to do a little cultural work, right? In one of his other letters, in 1 Corinthians, um, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, 1 Corinthians just means that it was the letter to the church in Corinth, but it was the first one he wrote, okay? Second means it was the second, at least the second one that we have. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians that preaching Christ, Jesus, crucified, is a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Here's, here he lumps them both together, but here's what he means. Jews believed that to be crucified, to be hung on a tree, is to receive the curse of God. Okay? To be cursed of God. That, that, some, that if you were to put on that, you were crucified, or you were, you were under God's curse. So if Jesus was crucified, that meant that he, one, was cursed by God, and therefore, two, could not in any way be God's Messiah, because why would God curse his own Messiah? Right? Makes sense? It's not the way God works. You're like, we've read the Bible. That is not the way he works. Okay? For Gentiles... To believe that your salvation, your human flourishing, the answer to your deepest problems, was bound up in someone who himself was executed by the Romans, was stupid. The dude couldn't even save himself. And you're saying that somehow he's the center of what's going to take away my deepest problems? That's idiocy. That you're saying that the one who can solve all my problems is so weak that he couldn't even stand up to Rome? I don't know. It's ridiculous. To believe that your salvation, and when I say salvation, I don't mean, listen, in the ancient world, to say salvation didn't mean going to heaven when you died. To tell a Greek person about that, they, they didn't really believe in any of that anyway. When, when Paul talked about salvation with them, he was talking about the state of flourishing, this, the rescue from the problems that all of us know about. We all inherently know them. And to say that our ultimate fullness was bound up not in us in what we do but someone who couldn't even save himself was just seen as outrageously dumb and Paul is saying if I say that you're right with God not because of Jesus 
But because of this sign, then I've completely removed the thing that makes this such a scandal to everybody. I've, I, it's no longer unpopular. It's no longer weird. Why would I be persecuted for that? Everyone already believes that whatever's going to make you right is something you do. Why would I be persecuted for that? And so Paul ends with this insanely strong reaction, right? Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you, oh, what a polite term, uh, unsettle you would emasculate themselves, okay? This is, seems like if you're, again, if you're not a Christian and you just heard me read that, you know, a few minutes ago and now again, you're like, see, this is everything that is wrong with Christianity. This is why the Bible is nuts. And it's easy to think that. It's easy to think that in our culture. Right? The, the word that Paul uses, that the ESV translates for as unsettling, just incredibly polite. It's the same word that you would use in literature of the time to talk about someone who incites a mob to rebellion. Yes, they are very unsettled, I would say. Right? Quite unsettling. Ooh, that mob in rebellion. All right? It's a very intentional word choice. Paul is saying that these teachers aren't doing a little thing. They are inciting these Christians to rebel against Jesus. Now, what happens with those who are convicted of treason? And I don't just mean in this country. I mean pretty much in any country. You're convicted of treason. That's not like a slap on the wrist, right? That's death. You see what's at stake in here? See, in our little Western, safe little Western world, we tend to think that differences of religion are basically no more than like, do you like body wash or bar soap, right? Do you like beer or wine? Are you into, you know, football or basketball? Like, we think it's a matter of preference. And we think it's a matter of preference because it's, it, it, to us, it's like this little tiny thing. But what's at stake here are the lives of those for whom Paul labored. If I would be so bold, like what, what's at stake here is not just their lives, it's yours, it's mine. It's God's at the middle of all of this. And so Paul's reaction is born out of love for them and his desire to protect them. What he's basically saying is this, if these guys like cutting so much, I wish they'd just do it on themselves, leave you out of it. He's not being polite. He's not being PC. He's not being judicious. What he is being is pastoral. He's speaking out of concern for those he loves and he wants to see flourishing relationship with Jesus. These are people that he had helped encounter Jesus. He'd helped them to grow to know Jesus. They're now showing Jesus to others. But now they're being derailed. They're prevented from running and in danger of rebelling against their king, of placing their faith not in him, but in themselves. And Paul is like, that road will lead you only to judgment. And he has no love for those that are responsible for this. None. None. I mean, he's not the only one, right? Jesus had some strong words for folks like that. He said that they should tie a millstone around their neck and jump off a cliff into a lake. It's not just Paul. Jesus said this. You know, Jesus. Robe, Birkenstocks. Like, Jesus. Jesus said that. Frankly, there's very little that's going to get me fired up like when I hear that someone heard in a church or from other Christians that God can't accept you unless your life is cleaned up. That drives me crazy. Friends, the gospel has not come be good like me. 
That, that is a lie from the pit of hell. We are right with God purely by faith in Jesus. Okay? Now, I want to I press this home this morning by dealing with, in, with two things. Uh, first, absolutes. The Bible has this stubborn fixation on placing God first in our lives. The way the, the early church father, um, 4th century, 5th century church father, St. Augustine, Augustine, Augustine's in Florida, Augustine's in heaven. Um, so the, he, he talked it in terms of aligning your loves. So when Jesus says you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Augustine would argue what he didn't mean is that you love that and not, don't love anything else. What he's saying is you, there's a first love, and all other loves are supposed to line up underneath it. And the Bible is stubborn that God has to have that first place. But it is also very clear that this is something that apart from his work in our lives is impossible for us. The Old Testament would talk about it in terms of um, this word called idolatry, right? The worshiping of false gods. But here's the thing. If you read the Old Testament, the, God's people in the Old Testament, very rarely are they purely idolatrous, right? If you read the Old Testament, very rarely is it like we worship just Baal. No, no, no. No, no. We don't do that. We worship Yahweh. We worship the God of Abraham and Baal. We worship the God of Abraham and we do this thing at the temple and then, you know, there's this high place. It's up on the mountain. We're going to go sacrifice something to Asherah. See, it's a little syncretism. Plausible deniability. Covering your bases. I mean, I worship the God of the Bible, but, you know, Baal brings the rain. I got I to gotta have rain for my crops. He's worshiping God over here, Baal over there, adding in another God, maybe dabbling in magic. Later in the Old Testament, it, it, as, as, as things kind of transitioned from, from those things, it became worshiping God outwardly, but inwardly being far from him. Same kind of thing. And God says that what they are worshiping in those days was not him. It was a God that only wanted outward service, not that wanted relationship. And the same is true in the New Testament. Idolatry is not just setting up a statue and bowing down to it. It is that. I mean, it's nothing less than that. But it's way more than that. It is trusting in anything but Jesus to make you right, to give you value, to make you somebody, to keep you safe, to satisfy you, to give you a status, to be your hope. You see, the problem in Galatia was that their hope was transferring. What, where, if you have two people, right, and the person on this side, both people say that their faith is in Christ, but the person on this side does all the religious things, and the person over on this side doesn't. If at the end of the day, this guy over here is in God's good graces and that one isn't, the difference is what they did. It's not in Jesus at all. And if that's you, and you think, no, that makes sense, then your hope is not in Jesus. Your hope is in you. This is why Paul said last week, he's going to keep saying it, when you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. Jesus plus anything equals anything but Jesus. It's nothing, it, it, you lose him. And surely, you know, some of you are thinking like, but surely God's happy with the good things I do even if I don't believe in Jesus. And friends, I cannot say this enough. You cannot kind of add up all of your good deeds and then 
give them to God. If he were looking for good, that would make sense. But he's not looking for good. He's looking for dependent. Because you can be very moral and very far from God. The good, if he's looking for any at all, is perfection. And that can only be found in Jesus. There's one way to be reconciled to God. It is faith in Jesus alone. And when you try to add anything to Jesus, you give up on Jesus. Okay? Now, lastly, let's deal with the, the offense. And some of you are like, you already did. All right? Yeah, but I'm going to keep going. So many people find Christianity offensive because of those absolute claims, right? Because in our culture, claiming anything to be absolute, claiming anything to kind of have... Uh, one way to do anything is, is, is offensive. To claim that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God is offensive. But here's the thing. What normally offends people when we say that is not what Paul's talking about. What normally offends people, and maybe it offends you, and so maybe this, is, this will link into what, what we're saying this morning. What, what normally offends people is this notion that Christianity's religious beliefs and activities are acceptable to God, but Buddhism's or Islam's or any other world system, their practices and beliefs aren't. And that somehow that what that is, is all you're doing is you're, you're pushing your culture's um, preferences on other people. See, in our, like, like I said, in our pluralistic culture, we don't like that. It sounds imperialistic. You think God likes this activity more than that one. But don't you see, like, that's still running on the assumption that it's our beliefs or our activities that gets us right with God or makes us flourish. Christianity is way more offensive than that. I mean, if that were it, I was like, I mean, yeah, but, you know, they all think that, so we're all equally offensive. Christianity is way more offensive than that. The offense of the cross is this, friends. None of your activities, religious or otherwise, can make you right before God. None of them. I don't care what culture they're from. None of your works, none of your moralism, none of your amoralism, your religion, your disbelief in religion, none of it can make you flourish or the world. The great offense of the cross is that only Jesus can do that. You've got to put your faith in Jesus who lived a life you couldn't, who died to bear your sin, your guilt, your betrayal of God, and then rose again as king. You can't do enough. You never could, and God isn't asking you to. So the cross offends our pride. That ain't all it offends. I mean, I don't care how moral you are, how immoral. Apart from Jesus, we're all lost and without hope. That's, that's the pride part. But the cross also offends our view of God. It offends this idea that God is a begrudging boss or a demanding taskmaster for whom we work and we get a wage in return cross says, no, 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 that's not what God's like at all. You don't get it. Instead, he's more like a scorned lover calling us to return and willing to bear the weight of our adultery on himself. But it also offends our self-protection, right? Our fear, because it calls us to release the imagined control we have over God. I know I say that, and you're like, what are you talking about? Listen, when you believe that your actions, that your deeds endear God to you, what you are saying is, 
I know how to get God to do right things for me. I do this, he does this. No, no, no. The cross is way more offensive than that. That there's nothing you can do to control him. That instead, we have to put our faith, our hope, our lives in the hands of another. And don't be a fool. That is offensive. You cannot control him. You cannot indebt him to you. You can't work enough for him because he doesn't want your work. He wants you. And you, I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but you actually want him too. And so if you're a Christian, listen close. That is the offense of the cross. Can we please make sure that's the offense that people get? Because more often than not, what we are doing that's offensive is not that. It's not that at all. And look, I'm not saying Christianity doesn't boldly proclaim a morality. It does. Jesus claims lordship over all of our lives, economic, relational, sexual, uh, institutional, like everything, not just some little corner that we call spiritual. He claims lordship over everything. And Paul's just about to get to that. And there's just a few verses. Just stick with me a few weeks. But that morality is the outflow of a life resting on Jesus alone. We cannot put the cart before the horse. To do so is to claim that God will accept us when we clean up our act and that he accepts us now because we have done so. But it is the cross that boldly declares that there's nothing in us that indebts God to us, but instead that God, out of his free, gracious, and sovereign choice, draws us to himself and rescues us only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is foolish and offensive to the world. And if we're being honest, sometimes to us too. But it is the glory, hope, and the great joy of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on us when we uh, put other offenses before that one. (laughs) Maybe we offend out of order. I don't know how to even talk about it except for that. So have mercy on us. Transform us into a community that puts the offense of the cross first and foremost that is honest about the fact that it still does offend us (laughs) and that we all have to wrestle with that offense daily. But at the same time, seeks to more and more place our hope and our faith in what you did there and in the one you did it through. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.